Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. It's a different paradigm that's going to need to keep chugging along if we are to hit 20% of all energy coming from solar globally by 2050. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I am thrilled that you've chosen to spend yet another week and your precious time with us here on Suncast. And I'm excited to bring you today's guest. Today's entrepreneur has enjoyed a broad 22-year career in the solar PV, clean energy innovation, climate change activism, and climate resiliency consulting sectors. Rarely do I meet executives with such passion and wide-ranging interests as my new friend, Dave Buemi. A huge shout out to our mutual friend, Blair Kendall, for insisting that I meet and interview this solar pioneer. Our mutual love of kite surfing and energy issues created a fun and inviting atmosphere to discuss topics as wide-ranging as the economic viability of the perovskite technology that he's currently commercializing, all the way to Dave's top three list of interests to pursue in the workplace. The founding story and team of Energy Materials Corporation, the company he presently represents, has deep credibility. So I now believe that if anyone can pull off commercial scale perovskite, it's them. But don't take my word for it. Hope you'll have a listen and judge for yourself. And afterward, I encourage you to head to mysuncast.com and check out the catalog of 200 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories. Get on the mailing list so we can stay in touch and you'll know first when the next episode drops. For now, Get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, today on Suncast, we have an entrepreneur and solar energy leader with 20 plus years experience in the space who has spent a significant amount of time helping launch and grow innovation and technology for clean energy, a lot of experience with federal programs uh, and broad experience at, at many levels of the organization, growing and selling products into the solar space. Mr. Dave Buemi, welcome to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. I'm really happy to be here. Can you give me an insight into your first exposure or foray into the power business and how you knew this is where you wanted to focus the next stage of your career? The sporting goods industry was fun. Uh, when I was getting ready to leave, people were like, are you out of your mind? That's my dream job. Why would you leave that? But for me, uh, you know, I've got two things that go on. I'm highly curious. It's, it's, uh, it's a blessing and a curse. And, um, and I've got this altruistic piece and, and looking at a solar project and a wind project that a developer that was way ahead of their time in the in the late uh, sorry the early nineties 
showed me a pro forma and wanted me to critique the business plan, the pro forma in it. And I had no idea what I was looking at, of course, when it was a widget guy um, selling widgets. And it really got my interest. Um, it, I really understood the trade-offs and, and the problems uh, of energy generation back then, mostly because I read, read the seminal publication, Limits to Growth. Those couple of things got me really thinking about, wow, this is a really interesting industry and it's got to happen. It's not, it wasn't happening back then, right? Um, so I transitioned um, out of the uh, sporting goods industry and windsurfing and water sports and, and started my own consulting firm because there wasn't a lot of companies back then to go apply to. And I, I did consulting to small uh, mom and pop shops that were doing small solar projects, mostly residential one gentleman that was doing a federal project, the first DOD project. In fact, when you drive by DOD and, and um, the Pentagon, you'll see a digital readout on one of the highways that shows how much solar energy they're producing. That was for that first project. For me, it was a way to get a, an education, a paid education in a new industry. Well, David, it's really interesting for me. You started out consulting, sort of bridging that gap between uh, knowledge and, act and action how do you get go from consulting in the wind industry to working for one of the early SIGs players? A lot of people don't realize this now. Back then, if there was a story about solar in the in the uh, national press, I mean, it was like a cause for celebration, right? There was yeah. very little press. And I was scanning it and running agents, and this thing about Daystar Technologies getting funded um, popped up. And so I reached out to them and uh, essentially they needed somebody that could do federal work, helping them to secure funding for further development of their manufacturing lines, the product, et cetera. Um, so I signed on to help them finding capital from the labs or from DOD, which we actually were successful in doing with DOD. And then in the middle of that, I, was, I took over marketing to help rebrand the company or update the brand really and some basic marketing back then. What's different about the way that you guys thought about and marketed uh, Daystar in those you know, late 90s, early 2000s and how the solar industry has evolved now? Daystar was a startup, right? So that was marketing was all geared toward the investor community. Interestingly, back then, we didn't really have to, we didn't have a product yet. So we weren't marketing, doing product marketing, but the market situation there was such that the few companies that really understood thin film and its ability to create more energy in you know, low light and uh, hotter temperatures, hotter ambient temperatures, they came to us. So we were selling pre-production orders early on. But the basic marketing was always geared back then toward the investment community. Daystar is well-funded. It was one of the early uh, companies to break out as a six-player how did you pivot from Daystar into Suniva? What was the catalyst for that? You know, that company needed like, I, I can't remember the number. Uh, it was roughly, you know, three or $500 million to get to full commercialization. It was, so the original funding involved taking the company public, which for a startup is a really difficult road because now you're at the quarter to quarter masters and, you know, you've got to show some progress. So it was difficult. There was a change of leadership. So I moved on to a, uh, and co-founded a startup with a very smart rocket engineer, believe it or not. <laughs> not a rocket scientist, but one of the smartest people I've, I've ever worked with. And it was a, a solar tri-generation product that sat on the roofs of commercial buildings. And it, it uh, allowed non-diffuse light to get into buildings through a louvered embodiment. 
It produced electricity and it also produced hot water. Similar to Cogenera or, or very much different? Um, somewhat similar. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, again, that, that, that daylighting in the buildings was, it was a really unique piece and the, yeah. retail, the retailers loved it. Right. Cause when you flood a space, I learned a uh, retail space with natural light documented studies number and show that retail sales go up a lot. So that, that was a company It was called bright phase energy. We took that to a, a probable series a round and this was all done with existing technologies and a proprietary engineering so we didn't need a lot of capital to get commercial we had a supermarket chain uh, signing on to buy a certain amount Uh, and then after many years of not taking vacations and working hard on that i went down to grand canyon for three weeks two and a half weeks came out of the Grand Canyon where there's no communications and Lehman Brothers had gone down in 2008 had gone down. And like a lot of startups, we ended up, you know, not going forward. And at that point, I, that's a long way to answer your question of, I, I went over to Cineva and that was the first, that was really my first corporate gig, so to speak, or at least full corporate gig. Right. One that you weren't an early member in. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I get it. 2008 federal global financial crisis you decide to wind the company down, you go to Cineva and thus uh, began a pretty decent tranche of your career, really working on federal strategy for larger international companies. How do you feel the work that you had done with Daystar and with Brightface really prepared you for the work at Cineva? And then later you went to Gerlicher and, uh, and Empower Energies. You know, you've, had, you've, you've worked with some of the, the really impressive companies uh, in, the, in the space. Federal market is probably one of the most interesting marketplaces to work in because it's all RFP based, mostly extremely bureaucratic. The challenges to winning business are really large, but it's really intriguing at the same time. It can be incredibly frustrating. It's a space, though, that gives you sales chops, so to speak, because it requires a fair amount of grit and a fair amount of creativity to navigate it. Um, so, you know, for me, uh, self-teaching the federal space, you know, is, is, I think, unusual in that most people go into it through a major corporation in their procurement group and, you know, like a defense contractor or something like that. So it definitely provided me a basis for, you know, uh, the stick, stick to itness. I'll say. You have, uh, similar to me, found yourself in a position where you are often early into a company that is commercializing a new take on a product or a completely new product in a category. Is there a particular reason why you've migrated to, towards those companies? Is it something about the way, that piece of the market that really inspires you? What, do you? what are your thoughts on the early stage companies versus late stage developed companies? I've always been wired for sort of innovation, new services, new products, technology. It's just, I, when I look back on my career at this point, I just have seen it all along. Even when I was starting my career in the sporting goods industry, I was working on diversification strategies into whole new industries. And that's just a mindset I have. I, 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 I also, I, I, when I look at that, I think it's the ambiguity that exists because you have no history generally with something new. You know, there's nothing to fall back on. I mean, you're working on intuition and, you know, again, just pure grit, you know, to, to make it happen. So I think, you know, there, there's two, I've done two types of uh, entrepreneurial endeavors. One, you know, we're a rank startup, um, done that a couple of times. And then corporate sponsored 
entrepreneurship within a within an existing mature company. Right. Um, entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah, entrepreneurship. And both both of them have their interesting pieces. And you know, you, a lot of people go, well, it must be so much easier in a large corporation. And it's a, somewhat a lot harder because you, you're working with people that are not entrepreneurs and that then. 25 years at GM and then they came over to this company and now they're, now they're managing a team of entrepreneurs and they have no idea. So it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic. And you can't really go out and raise capital. You're beholden to budgeting conversations. Yeah, it, that's absolutely it. And, and a lot of the times the senior, the C-suite has no idea this is even going on. Well, you have uh, recently taken on a project that is probably why many have clicked on listen for this episode. Uh, that could be, and that's simply, uh, simply put, the idea, the topic of Perviskite as an alternative to silicon for power generation has been bubbling for a few years now. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, a lot of folks incumbent in the industry have uh, an inherent interest in seeing uh, the, the very notion of Perviskite sort of not make it. So I'd love to talk a little bit about a company that believes very much in the fact that it will make it. You are working with a company out of New York called Energy Materials Corp, founded by or run at least by Stephen DeLuca, the CEO, uh, who was uh, was in at Daystar while you were there, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's correct. He, he, came in, he came in and took over the CEO position from the original founder CEO. Help me understand how you made your way into the wild, wild west of Perviskite and what problem uh, Energy Materials Corporation is uh, working to solve. I met him last summer. Again, we reconnected and he started telling me the story of solar cell material, really easy to work with. You know, you're working with it at the atomic level, or sorry, at the molecular level, not the atomic level so much. You can use existing printing systems and really fast and we can lower the cost by 50%. All the things that you heard from Cleantech 101, solar and Cleantech 101 back in the mid 2000s. And I worked for one of them, which was Daystar Technologies. A similar story existing technology, we're going to take Seagate hard drive manufacturing machines and make, make SIGs. And I just said, again, dude, I don't know if I can do this. This is, sounds really similar. That, and that is one of the challenges that we'll talk about in a bit about account, getting the company funded. So perovskite's this material that was being used as part of the inorganic solar cell stacks that were worked on 10, 15 years ago, a company called Dysol, a few others. And what they learned in that is that the perovskite compound was actually all by itself an amazing photoreactive material um, you know, to build a, an entire uh, cell device out of. It occurs naturally in nature, I mean, but it's pretty far down in the Earth's crust, so it's hard to get at. But interestingly, perovskite can be synthetically manufactured because you need so little of it and the materials that you, that go into it to manufacture it are not raw materials that you have to worry about going into undersupply. They're not constrained at all. It's this sort of almost miraculous material. And this, you know, people started working with it at academic institutions in 2011, approximately, at a 2% efficient solar cell. And here we are, you know, eight, nine years later at 24, 25% solar cell efficiency. So it's, it's, it's a material that, because it's 
quite easy to work with. Um, you can print it in a solution, in a, in a coding and solution type system, like you make a celluloid film, like Kodak makes celluloid film. Steve DeLuca's brilliance and strategy here was to not go and try to reinvent all kinds of things, but was to bring together what we call an innovation mashup. So you're bringing together Kodak with their existing printing lines in all vertically integrated under one roof. Those systems are, uh, I mean, they're the 100-year undisputed leader in high-speed roll-to-roll printing. We can talk a little bit more about that. And then bring Corning into it with their flexible willow glass, which is another just an amazing material science triumph. You know, very thin, ultra-thin, flexible glass to, to make modules on. Bringing uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill in to license and work with their perovskite group that has a currently, I think it's a 24% efficient cell in the, in the lab. So those are the three main partners. NREL and DOE are, are involved in the company also. So Stephen, to his credit, has created uh, this company, Energy Materials Corporation, as as you refer to it, an innovation mashup instead of going and, and creating something in his own, effectively, as many uh, great leaders do, taking existing technologies and compiling them. One of the things that blows me away is the success and scale that you guys have been able to accomplish in a very short amount of time. Can you talk about that and kind of what you guys are doing in the Kodak factory up in, North, in uh, New York? Kodak has, you know, again, this 100-year history of leadership in high-speed film production, making film for all the old-style cameras, right? Although, you know, Kodak, when you say Kodak these days, people go, oh, God, are they still in business? Because they miss, everybody knows, I mean, they teach us in business school, they miss the digital camera train. That doesn't take anything away from the fact that they still manufacture film for the motion picture industry and other industries. And they, every, everything that was done at that company at a functional level of manufacturing is just unbelievable. The story is amazing. It would take us a whole separate show to talk about it. But the factory itself where we are doing this work is one very large, large building, as they all are on the Kodak campus. And vertically integrated under that roof is a, a production line or a, a production process that starts with a pilot line where you test and prove the coding and printing of a new product. And then you get that up to a full operational capacity of whatever the product is. And then you transition that over to a full scale line that's upstairs in the building. That full scale line is just so impressive. It is for us, it's a three gigawatt a year building block, um, which is unheard of. Three gigawatts a year of module manufacturing. In, in the, the ground floor, all of the uh, ink solutions and other solutions are mixed and the recipes are made there and then put into, into vats that then feed through piping up through the floor to the three gigawatt machine. And it's an eight station process. So on one end, you have a roll of flexible corning glass, big roll of it. And that's running through all of these stations. And on the other end comes out a giant roll of effectively one big solar module. And you take that roll and you cut modules to size. You finish the, the module piece itself, which is essentially at full production. We're taking that, that material, that solar module material, cutting it, sealing it, putting a J-box in it and shipping it. It's that, it's that different from a current solar module process where 
you know, you've got five discrete steps in a crystalline module process, and then you've got 250 uh, individual steps in those five processes. This is a two-step process with about 25 individual processes. And, and the, the Kodak facility is just so impressive because it, it's, you, you watch the, the system operate and you just, it just, the speed is just astounding. We were talking in our last call about how in a span of, you know, uh, I think it was eight months, you got to an efficiency level that, you know, um, that would make uh, other thin film blush. And you're doing a rate of, what, 50 feet per minute production. And this is on a few million dollars investment. Is that accurate? So the company is working at, to, on something called pilot line scale up. So versus a ramp up of a, of a line, this is about scaling up and the recipe so that we are making a solar cell eventually at our commercial drop off point of uh, 50%. That's where we want to get to. When you do that, the, the, the speed piece is where cap operating capital efficiency comes in. Um, the faster you go, the, the, the more, the greater the, the gross margin. It's just astounding. So, in the past eight or I think it's nine months, the company's gone from you know a, a two percent at a very slow speed to something that's uh, you know nearing our end objective of eighteen uh, percent to commercialize at a cost that would be significantly less than what. Um, the current crystalline module is. I'm being a little vague here because some of the stuff that the company just, you know, we don't put out there right now. But we are we are already more than three quarters of the way there, efficiency wise, and we're, uh, you know, close. We're we're ramping toward that 50 feet per minute. So this has never really been done before at this kind of speed and efficiency and in that time frame that I know of in the industry. You know, I think one of the things that stands out to me is how much you have been able to accomplish with relatively little investment thus far. Obviously, there's some in-kind uh, contribution from partners like Horning and Kodak and the University of North Carolina in this mashup. I just want to be able to put this, the magnitude of this into the listeners' ears, right? You know, when you think about Daystar, when you think about Solyndra, some of the well-understood, well-known failures in the past, especially around thin film, you know, not every, most did not have the success of, of First Solar, for example. And thus the sort of the market change, the market shift that everyone would say, oh, right, uh, right. And, you know, we, we thought then film was going to do this great thing and it didn't. It flopped uh, because of, of crystalline silicon. What we're talking about here is a fundamental shift that will effectively crater the, the silicon, crystalline silicon market when commercialized successfully. Is that accurate? I don't think the last part of your statement is completely accurate in that I think the crystalline industry has an enormous amount of invested money in it. And it's a different paradigm that's going to need to keep chugging along if we are to hit 20% of all energy coming from solar globally by 2050. Is this manufacturing process, though, that the incumbents will just adopt and, and it'd be easy for them to add a line of perovskite manufacturing? Correct. Yeah. At some point, at some point, I mean, uh, you know, this this is highly contentious in the industry. And which, uh -huh. Of course. Which we try to walk gently around saying, you know, uh, you know, outrageous statements about any part of the industry right now, because it's all needed if we're going to make 
essentially 20% of all energy by 2050 means starting next year, we have to install 500 gigawatts of solar every year until 2050. And it's going to need all, all participants and all efforts, and it's going to need innovation, and it's going to, you know, not just in modules, but across the PV supply chain, and it's going to need existing players to innovate, but also keep producing. Hey, Warrior, you know, I've always thought that commercial solar should just have an easy button for financing, the way that residential solar typically has had. But credit has always been a gating issue. Until now, energetic insurance levels the playing field so that project developers can now offer the same electricity savings to small and medium-sized businesses that were previously reserved for the large commercial buyers in the U.S. alone. They're Interrate credit cover policy provides the missing link, that easy button I mentioned earlier, for commercial solar that a FICO score provided to residential solar, which enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects. You can check it out at mysuncast.com forward slash energetic and submit your projects today. Hey, 70% of projects qualify and the review process is easy. Go to mysuncast.com forward slash energetic. Hey, are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize the ROI for your customer? Extensible Energy's Demand X software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches that data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes, increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Head to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your project and to learn more about Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers. You can learn more at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Can we talk about the target market price and the target capex reduction? Because that's where I think it gets interesting in terms of just really forcing incumbents to, to take note and to incorporate it into their plans. So what's really interesting is, is that there's there's two things going on in in perovs in mods perovskite modules, right? You've got people out there, you know, Oxford PV has gotten a fair amount of financing really smart people, they are taking a perovskite and uh, that they're doing in a vapor deposition, which is a multi-step process, not roll to roll. And then they're laminating that, so to speak, I'm using very broad brushstrokes here, to an existing crystalline solar cell. And the play there is to bring LCOE down a lot, even though that cost of that may go up by trying to get to an efficiency of you know, 26, 27%. The other way is just a pure perovskite cell, which is what we're working on, doing that in a high-speed roll-to-roll. You have a couple of companies that are working on inkjet printing of perovskites, which is, you know, you can understand is not a high-speed process, but you can make small modules and use them for things like off-grid and, you know, camping and things like that. Where EMC what we believe is, is leading the market is being able to use these existing facilities and come with a product very quickly, like within the next 24 months to the marketplace that is 50% less cost, average selling price than projected best in class monocrystalline is how we yeah. model them. The CapEx for the factory is, is almost negligible because we're using an existing factory. 
But even when we build new greenfield factories, which is our, our greater vision is to start building factories quickly, the, the coding and printing machine itself, plus the factory build out is about $110 million. It's tiny compared to other facilities doing output. And that's for that's 110 million gets you a three gigawatt factory. Yeah, that's orders of magnitude smaller, right? That's like 90% less capex than 90% less capex on average. Yeah. And for those quants that are doing the math, best in class, current silicon crystalline uh, projections are in the very low 20 cents per watt. So you're around, 20, around 24 cents. Yeah. Correct. And you're projecting a 50% reduction in that. And that's unbelievable. Again, roughly. But these, you know, when you listen to startups and we've all listened to all kinds of stuff over the years, you know, you hear a lot of claims like this. And I'm always suspect. But here that the story is different because of this history of Kodak and their understanding of the numbers and have it's not like I talked about before the ambiguity of a startup where you have no history. We've got these partners that all have history to draw on to be able to then come to somewhat precise numbers on where we're heading. And that's really exciting for me. What about the naysayers, Dave? The, those who say that Perovsky fails in the light of day. I used to be one of them. I was like, yeah, it's a great product, except that you put it out in the sun. It doesn't, it doesn't work <laughs> or it works for 10 minutes, right? So interestingly, you know, we talked about perovskite and how quickly the efficiency went up in the lab, right? Yeah. Interestingly, the same thing is happening with stability, uh, light-induced light degradation, and that's stability. And, it, you know, if you look at a, a perovskite cartoon of a cell stack, you know, on either side of the cell are the, the electron transfer layers. And that, it turns out, those materials that were being used early on are were the problems of the, the degradation. If you look at any recent, and, and, the, and I'll just back up and say that the internet is just littered with perovskites. The titles are like perovskites, the future is solar, but will they last, et cetera. And, you know, a, a journalist loves a hero villain story, right? It's perfect. But if you look at recent stuff, you'll see um, that the light-induced degradation stability is, is, I don't want to say solved, but it's way, way along the way. I mean, obviously, uh, Oxford PV, the other company I mentioned, is is getting ready to put a commercial product out, you know, with with perovskite laminated to silicon. That light-induced degradation piece is well understood. And then the the other piece that comes up all the time under the heading of of, uh, stability is, um, is environmental stability. Way back when, there was it was very unsure whether standard packaging systems, laminating that we're using on crystalline uh, um, materials um, or glass, glass like for solar, would work for perovskites. And the short story is it, they work perfectly. Um, and that is a checkbox to be checked. I think the third piece that comes up all the time is the, the minuscule amount of lead that's in a perovskite solar cell. You know, lead obviously is something that creates concern. We've been trying to get out of the environment, but the amount of lead in a, in a perovskite module is actually quite a bit smaller than the amount of cadmium you find in a first solar module, like significantly smaller. You know, I can go on and on about lead. I mean, there's a whole recycling stream out there, so it's very mature. Lead is never going to go into a short supply. Um, and with a, uh, you know, like the industry has recycling systems out there for modules as they come out, this is just another module we put into that stream. Where does this really start to get fun and groundbreaking for you, uh, in the, in the coming 12, 24 months? 
Well, a couple things. So first is, is closing our next round of funding is fun. And I'm working on that with, with Steve and the team um, diligently. And I think the, the other piece that's fun that we're already having interesting conversations. For me, this is the part that I love in a startup is early stage orders for products. Yeah. Very specific mindset, a very specific partner and company that, that will do that. And the forward looking mostly developers, but also some finance companies we've talked to are interested in, we have a, what we call our, our advanced uh, partner pre, uh, pre-production sale program um, so that we have a bankability process in place. That's one leg of it. We're getting modules out in the field with our partners quickly. They're being monitored and tested along with other bankability measures, but that's a big one to be able to have out there really quickly. Yeah, the uh, I mean, the whole idea about bankability is the it's the Achilles heel of any new tech trying, especially trying to enter into a market driven by uh, ever lower uh, PPA prices and uh, merchant prices in a utility scale market. Right. What are some of the key things that you've seen, broadly speaking, not just the MC, but the products that you've brought to market that really are core requirements for achieving bankability and getting these products into the hands of developers uh, and actually into projects? So I I think the the first piece of that is getting products out in the field and immediately getting a monitoring system on it, preferably by a third party. Money spent in the bankability phase is well spent for your down, for your rapid acceleration downstream to sales. Um, you know, obviously there's been insurance programs out there that had sort of okay acceptance, but there's holes in those insurance programs as far as longevity and some other things that just, you know, it makes it difficult to work. Investors that are in the company and their stature can really help depending on who they are, what they are, et cetera. And then of course our partners are themselves that bring confidence to the product itself and being out in the marketplace. But I think the, the the thing that's really interesting about bankability has always kind of made me laugh is that in order to get on like these Bloomberg's, you know, tier one list, it essentially requires you, it requires some investor to take a lot of risk to, to do it. Cause they basically say it has to have been funded by, you know, five invest, five different investors. <laughs> so it's just so funny to me um, because that's basically punting the bankability thing down the road. They're, they're just, they're, they're, that list is almost immaterial to me. Um, so it, it's, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, um, but it, it won't be the first. <laughs> it's a guide that, that the finance industry likes to have. Right. But there's a number of other factors there that, that are really important. And, and I, given that modules are 45% of the cost of a complete system, I get that that's, you know, neat. I don't mean to sound cavalier. It's a really important thing to figure out. And it's up to us to be able to bring a product to market with a bankability story that relieves heartburn. When you look back over your career, is there a failure that you feel like most affected uh, the direction that you've gone? Yeah, the, the biggest failure I've had early on was not understanding the management cultures that I was working in and reacting in a way that wasn't good for my career or my position in that company. I think that the management early on, I just wasn't understanding management culture and the cultures that were, that were managing from a place of fear just were so atypical or so not what I was about. 
um, and really hard time with that, really hard time understanding the human toll was taking on people across it. So I didn't react well in those. And, and so uh, the broader heading is, is not understanding management culture. I guess similarly, is there a time where you think back and there were really, it was really a, a milestone or a mile marker for you, uh, success or a turning point in your career? Yeah, understanding, again, this is more psychological than, than an actual event, but understanding self-esteem and self-doubt limitations. You know, I, I say this, I've said this recently in a, in a, in a forum and a talk that I was involved with, and, you know, self Self, low self-esteem is a national health crisis, and it's probably worse in the U.S. than it is anywhere else in the country. I don't know what it is about our, our culture, but, you know, at this point, or being a recovering self-doubter, <laughs> I see it in meeting settings. I see it socially. It's really an interesting phenomenon, and I think it's really an efficiency killer. That would be a hilarious T-shirt, <laughs> recovering self-doubter. <laughs> yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? Oh, uh, man. <laughs> Well, Dave, I haven't done a hot or hype segment in a little while. I'd like to do it with you. Uh, I'll name a specific market or topic, and you spend 30 or 60 seconds on whether you think it's hot or hype and why. And we'll start with the first one, and that is transactive energy for homeowners or network blocks, I mean, uh, neighborhood blocks. I don't think that's hype at all. I think that that is more, you know, gonna, I, I think it's a really great space. I think if you're going to get really efficient with energy, that, that, that kind of transactive capability, and if you wrote blockchain into that, I think it's everything that I've read, I've talked to people about it, and I've seen is, is it's hugely promising. Of course, the regulatory piece of that is, is like a lot of things in our industry is, is, a, is a huge unknown and how fast that can happen. I think, I think the regulatory holds back that, uh, from happening faster than we would all like. Yeah. How about vehicle to grid and the nexus of distributed generation and e-mobility? I think that that is an enormously important part of the whole decarbonization effort. I don't think it's hype. I think some of it's hyped in certain parts of it, um, but I think overall it's it's a part of the uh, industry that is is hugely important and the, and is made possible by large scale renewable deployment. So I don't think that's hype at all. I think the the other piece that's interesting, if I went a little broader than just automobile and just said transportation. Um, you know, when you look at trucks and things like, I mean, trucks are just an enormous polluting source. There's things going on with batteries and batteries coupled with green hydrogen that are, are I think, are not hype at all. Yeah, and I think I would, I would agree with that transportation rather. I mean, not just automobile vehicles for residential uh, or consumer use. I'm thinking more like mobile battery storage vis-a-vis transportation vehicles and its impact on the ability to stabilize the distribution grid. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I don't view that as hype at all. I, I just think, again, that's a regulatory thing that we need to work through. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next, uh, connecting some of the dots, and you mentioned this already uh, in one of your previous answers, but blockchain as it relates to energy. So I, I get way out of my, my knowledge base here. But what I know in the early uh, trials and in different settings seem to be really promising. Blockchain to me is a, I think, is an industry that is growing by itself outside of energy, and it's a new technology. So I think there's a lot of turns in the road. I see that as as not hype. Yeah, and but again, I'm, I'm way out of my my knowledge base there. Fantastic. Well, I'll bring it back to your knowledge base for our last one. Uh, this crazy material called perovskite. Uh, yeah. or hype. 
Yeah, I think if you ask 90% of, of, of your network and industry people, they would say it's type uh, just because it has that same kind of entrepreneur, you know, never underestimate an entrepreneur to oversell a concept, right? Um, we all, I do it, we've all done it. Um, and so when you oversell like that, it gets people really suspicious because there's been so many failures. Um, thin film in general, with the exception of First Solar, which is just an amazing executing company, even with a lot of different CEOs, they, the people down at Plumbing do an amazing job, but that's the exception. Thin film is generally given anything that smells like that at Avenue. Yeah, well, may AMC be the exception, the first solar exception in Perovskite. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's going to be just EMC. I think there'll be others. So I just think EMC is built to be early. And that's yeah. what people are having a hard time getting their head around. What book have you recommended or gifted the most and why? All my friends that know me and people I've worked with and have worked for me, they've all pretty much read a book called 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And it is my Bible and it is by far the, I think, one of the most important management books, business books that's out there. It is essentially working at the emotional intelligence level, which, you know, when you look at how business is conducted right now, like if you look at the HR process, the intake usually involves somebody taking a a personality test like Myers-Briggs, et cetera which all of those tests have been shown to be completely ineffective and if in fact problematic and none of them have been academically vetted. And the problem with them is, is they don't go down to the emotional level of the person. So you, there's actually emotional intelligence testing you can do, which a lot of, a lot of corporations are using now, some giant ones like Aetna Insurance and smaller ones. Um, so 15 Commitments is all about the emotional realm. What book uh, or books have shaped and influenced, I presume that one for sure, uh, but your leadership style? Good to Great, a very old book at this point. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Jim Collins, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's a seminal publication. Uh, it really resonated with me and clicked with me. And it's, uh, you know, that, that, that humble sort of CEO that they describe in there and the way they managed is, is just so emo- it's it's that was emotional intelligence that they discovered before there was terminology for it. What book is on your nightstand? One of them is uh, uh, was given to me by a, a rising star in the in the solar industry, a guy named Ryan Marborough. I give him total kudos for his great work in forwarding me this book. Um, it's called Tools of Titans by Tim uh, Ferriss. Of course, you know that book? Yeah. You're the first to recommend it, but yeah, uh, I and many of my friends have read it. Yeah, really great. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's like a tele- old telephone book thick, right? So it's something that stays by your nightstand for a while. Yeah, encyclopedia. Yeah. Um, and then the other book I'm reading is, uh, it's called Losing Earth, written by a guy named Nathaniel Rich. It was, uh, the production of it was financed by the Pulitzer uh, uh, Foundation. And there's a short article out there that people can read. It's in the New York Times. It's called um, Losing Earth. A decade we failed to stop climate change and when you read that just read that article if you don't even have to read the book you go oh this is how we got to where we are right now um essentially it's i mean in a nutshell it's basically back in the in the 80s you know government environmental organizations oil and gas all came together through a series of lengthy meetings over 10 years and they came to an agreement on how they're going to start working on re- immediately reducing emissions. 
everybody signed off. Everybody said the science was real, including the oil and gas industries. And then without giving away too much, the, the, one of the one of the entities, uh, one of those blocks, which you can guess is oil and gas, left the table at the 11th hour, started a disinformation campaign. So most of the climate denier material you hear out there comes right from that point. So interesting. Great read. If you have not listened to this, Dave, you really should go check it out. Uh, there's a podcast that came out, I think, beginning of this year, maybe it might have been like in December of last year, uh, called Drilled uh, by Amy Westervelt. You've got to listen to it. It is just fantastic. It talks about that exact, uh, that exact shift. Uh, yeah, and I don't the, know that, but thank you for that. I will listen to that. The, the misinformation around, uh, uh, around climate change in particular. Dave, over the arc of uh, your career and your life, what consistent habit or practice has had the greatest impact on you? So predictably, based on some of the other things I said, you can probably tell that uh, meditation is part of what I do, just present moment meditation. Um, I've done it on and off for a long time and then more in the last 10 years pretty religiously. Is there a, a particular uh, tool or anything that you leverage to help you get into a meditative state? There is not, um, but I, I would highly recommend um, for people that are either struggling with meditation or don't know how to get into it is to just look up um, a website for Tara Brock, T-A-R-A Brock, you know her. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Tim Ferriss talks about her a lot. In fact, uh, I listened to a meditation that she has. Uh, that's the smile. Meditation. Yeah. Her, her loving kindness meditations are really good as well. Yeah. Her guided, that whole, all the guided things she offers free is such a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. And she's actually recently joined uh, Insight Timer, which is a, uh, a meditation app I use. So she's joined as a teacher there. And so a lot of her meditations are on there now. Easy to find. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, Insight Timer is great. Well, Dave, where can people find out more about you, more about Energy Manage, Energy Materials Corporation? For me, you can find me online and on LinkedIn, of course. And then I have a Twitter account that I'm somewhat active with, not, not, not like a lot of people. And then um, I have a blog that I've written about the PV industry for kind of almost 15 years. And that, that's currently on hold until I'm going to do a reformat of that and rebuild. And then Energy Material Corporation's website, uh, E-N, E like England, N like Nancy, and then uh, M-A-T, and then Corp, C-O-R-P.com. Let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. Dave, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? The one that I'm sure of and people always fight back on me is, is that I think we will see in the near term a complete turn of government and business, but business leading on decarbonization really quickly. I think things are accelerating to a point right now where it's not a you know, if or even it's far off, far off, I think that the panic is setting in. You know, I, I do work in that space of climate resiliency, do a small amount of consulting from some training I did, and I just see it. I mean, I, I'm, a lot of people say I'm out of my mind, but I think, you know, in the next 10 years or less, we will have a, a, a large turn. And if we don't, well, it's really interesting. We'll be, we'll be looking at and chronicling it here on Suncast. Thanks, Dave Buemi, for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much, Nico. A real pleasure. Wow, you are an Outro Credits listener just like me. Well, that makes you a true solar warrior, so I salute you. What do you think? Are you convinced that Perovskite can finally make a viable commercial entry into the solar arms race? I'm eager to hear what your takeaways are and what additional questions it might have sparked for you. Would you mind posting your thoughts on Twitter or LinkedIn? And please tag us. Dave and I would love to hear how this one impacted you. 
As always, you can find the resources, links, highlights, book recommendations, etc., that we've discussed here today, along with all of our social media links over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And hey, if you're a reader, and I suspect that you are, then you really should consider joining the Suncast Book Club. I've never really opened this up to the public before. It's been part of our private Slack group. We're going to be going through one of the books that Dave recommended in today's episode, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. So for a limited time, I'm opening up our private Slack group that's dedicated to Suncast Tribe members to those of you who might be interested in joining the book club and sharpening the saw along with us. To join, you need to email me at nico at mysuncast.com with book club in the subject line, and I'll send you that private Slack group invite. And hey, speaking of email, please do consider joining the newsletter. If you're listening all the way through this outro, then you're truly a special part of our tribe. I'd like to learn more about you. So please take a moment to participate in our listener survey. You can find that on the homepage of mysuncast.com or linked, as I mentioned, in our newsletter. I'd be honored if you'd take a minute to let me know more about you and how I can mold Suncast into something that serves and piques your interest. Join the newsletter so you don't miss that email, okay? You know, as always, I am so happy that you chose to be here again this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>